In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Boricua. But Boricua is more than a name for a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure no matter where it may lead, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. And you can experience all that warm, welcoming, passionate culture set in a tropical island paradise without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Learn more about how you can live Barigua at discoverpuertorico.com. In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Barigua. But Barigua is more than just a word to identify a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. In Puerto Rico, you can experience a tropical paradise with world-class beaches. You can immerse yourself in the rich 500-year history of Old San Juan, where there are stunning forts, classic town plazas, and iconic monuments. You can indulge in a foodie paradise with renowned restaurants, seaside kiosks, and an innovative cocktail scene. And you can take in an abundance of natural wonders like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. national forest system, all without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more about the warm culture of Puerto Rico and how you can live Boricua at discoverpuertorico.com. Hey everyone, and welcome to Travel Tales, a podcast from Afar Media. I'm your host, Senior Editor Aislinn Green. And for the past six years, I've had the pleasure of working with some of the most creative and interesting people in the world. Comedians, philosophers, novelists, they've all shared their stories with Afar's readers about getting out into the world and just reveling in it. And now, each week on Travel Tales, we'll hear from some of our favorite contributors about a trip that changed their life. In this episode, we meet Chris Collin. Chris is a contributing writer for Afar. He also writes for California Sunday and Outside. And he's the author of What to Talk About, On a Plane, At a Cocktail Party, In a Tiny Elevator with Your Boss's Boss. Long title, great book. He's a deep thinker and a master of nuance. He's also really funny. And five years ago, he said he wanted to go to Japan and rent a friend. We had a hunch it would be great, but no one expected the funny yet profound story he discovered. I'm new in Tokyo and sweaty and jet-lagged. I don't understand where I am exactly, don't understand the lunch menu in front of me at this little curry place, or even if it is a lunch menu, could be a religious tract or a laminated ransom note. But I'm also entirely at ease. I owe this to my friend Miyabi, who's sitting across from me. She's one of those reassuring presences, warm and eternally nodding and unfailingly loyal, like she will never leave my side. At least not for another 90 minutes, which is how much of her friendship I've paid for. Miyabi isn't a prostitute, or an escort, or an actor, or a therapist. For the past five years, she's been a professional rent-a-friend, working for a company called Client Partners. 
My lunchmate pokes daintily at her curry and speaks of the friends whose money came before mine. There was the head of a prominent company, rich and very clever, but conversationally marooned at hello. Discreetly and patiently, Miyabi helped draw other words out. There was the string of teenage girls struggling to navigate mystifying social dynamics. At their parents' request, Miyabi would show up and just be a friend. You know, a normal, companionable 27-year-old friend. She's been paid to cry at funerals and swoon at weddings, lest there be shame over a paltry turnout. Some of her friendships last for but a single explosive moment. Last year, she tells me, a high schooler hired her and 20 other women just long enough to snap one grinning, peace sign flashing, I totally have friends, Instagram photo. That was it. Friendship complete. It was a few months ago when I first learned that friendship is rentable in Tokyo. And at the time, it just seemed like more Japanese wackiness, in a subset I'd come to think of as interest kitsch. Every day in Japan, it seems, some weird new appetite is identified and gratified. There are cats to rent, used underwear to purchase, owls to pet at owl bars. Cuddle cafes exist for the uncuddled, goat cafes for the ungoated. All to say I expected something more or less goofy when I lined up several English-speaking rent-a-friends for my week in Tokyo. Client partners exist primarily for lonely locals, but the service struck me as well-suited to a solo traveler, too, so I paid a translator to help with the arrangements. Maybe a more typical Japanese business would have bristled at this kind of intrusion from a foreigner. But the rent-a-friend world isn't typical, I would soon learn, and in some ways it wants to subvert all that is. And so I intrude robustly over the course of my lunch with Miyabi. Contrived Instagram photos aside, she tells me, her career mostly comprises the small, unremarkable acts of ordinary friendship. Shooting the breeze over dinner, listening on a long walk, speaking simple kindnesses on a simple drive to the client's parents' house, simply to pretend you two are in love and absolutely on the verge of getting married, so don't even worry, mom and dad. As a girl, Miyabi longed to be a flight attendant, continental for some reason, and that tidy solicitousness still emanates. She wears a smart gray skirt, and a gauzy beige blouse over which a sheet of impeccable hair drapes weightlessly. She doesn't care that I am impeccable. She smiles when I smile, touches my arm to make a point. Her graciousness cloaks a demanding job. With an average of 15 gigs a week, Miyabi's hours are irregular and bleed from day into night. The daughter of a doctor and a nurse, she still struggles to convince her parents that her relatively new field is legitimate. The money is fine, but not incredible. I'm paying her roughly $115 for two hours, some percentage of which client partners keeps. So why does she do it, I ask? Miyabi puts down her chopsticks and explains. It helps people, real and lonesome people in need of whatever ineffable thing friendship means to our species. So many people are good at life online or life at work, but not real life, she says, pantomiming someone staring at a phone. For such clients, a dollop of emotional contact with a friendly person is powerful, she adds, even with a price tag attached. So this isn't secretly about romance, I ask? Client Partners has two rules, she tells me. No romance and no lending money. Also, be ready for all types of clients. Widowers who need someone to watch TV with. Shy guys who could use a dating coach. Shy gals longing for a shopping companion. 
and that one dude who just wanted a friend who'd do him the solid of waiting seven hours outside Nike to snag these fresh sneakers for him when they went on sale. Then there are the fake boyfriends. A few years back, a fellow I'll call Hayato had been facing intense pressure to find a wife and start a family. He was 35, after all. But it wasn't happening, so he started a charade instead. A visit to his parents' home was coming up, and with Miyabi's help, he concocted a whopper. That she was one of Hayato's employees at his company, and they had fallen in love. The two hunkered down in cafes to practice, sharing biographical details and rehearsing romantic quirks. As long as she was telling lies, he decided some general flattery wouldn't hurt. Hayato's so great and kind at the company. Everyone there loves him. The day of the visit came, and lo, the parents bought it. Soon, the fake relationship fake graduated to a fake engagement. It was embarrassing, Miyabi tells me about the lying. But watching his parents feel good when I said these nice things about him, it's not all bad. Still, all pretend good things come to an end, and eventually a finale was written. When the time came, a heartbroken Hayato informed his parents that Miyabi loved her career more than she loved him. She'd transferred to a different branch, and that was that. After lunch, Miyabi and I walk out into the afternoon, our friendship nearly done. We stroll north toward the cartoonishly packed intersection near the Shibuya subway station. Smiling young people pop into department stores. School children huddle and cackle and retreat to phones and then re-erupt. Every other shirt shouts a bright, exuberantly nonsensical slogan. I'm just being emo yesterday. The whole scene looks like a promotional video for Japan. I believe Miyabi when she says her job is satisfying because of the personal connection. But I have to ask her why there's such a demand for it on the client's side. Why? Miyabi asks, gesturing to the smiling people around her. Because this is all a lie. The next day is hot, almost steamy. And that afternoon, I take the subway to the city's jumbly Sanginjaya neighborhood. It's been 24 hours since Miyabi and I parted company. A month in unmoored Tokyo time. And I filled it roaming through cute toy stores and narrow alleys thick with yakitori smoke. I gawked at white-gloved parking attendants and observed a poster showing a muscular cartoon figure winding up to punch someone. Floor information, the poster said. From my studio, ten stories up, I've tried unsuccessfully to snap everything into some kind of mental framework. Possibly I need some floor information. For now, it's time to get to know my new friend, Yumi. We meet in the back of a dark izakaya. She's petite, with bird-like features made more bird-like by her human-scale fedora. She speaks good English, but still wobbles, so her husband, Taka, joins us. They're one of those sweet, unassuming couples that exist just to radiate koala-like gentleness. They help me order, and as we nibble at pork with ginger, Yumi cheerfully tells me about the gigs she's had since becoming a rent-a-friend. There was the mystery writer who wanted her to read the novel he had toiled away at for ten years. Another man needed someone to talk with about his aging parents, not in person, but via months of emails. Like Miyabi, Yumi works weddings. She tells me that, for one, she was hired to play the sister of the bride, a real living woman who herself was in a family feud that precluded her attendance. The mother of the bride was also a rental. The two imposters got along swimmingly. Yumi explains that these are just the more theatrical gigs. The bulk of her clients, they just want basic, uncomplicated companionship. From Yumi's vantage point, 
The breadth and depth of that need says something profound about her country. There's a word in Japanese, gaman, that translates roughly as stoic forbearance in the face of the unbearable. It's a deep-seated Japanese value, this idea that you suck it up no matter what's happening. A lot has been happening in Japan. Anxiety and depression spiked after the Fukushima nuclear disaster, according to the World Health Organization. The country itself is shrinking, its population plummeting and aging rapidly. And there's the apparently growing problem of people who literally work themselves to death. A third of suicides have been attributed to overwork. All of that, Yumi and Taka say, but you must act like everything's fine. I gather this is the lie Miyabi was referring to. Enter the rent-a-friend. Not a miracle cure, no, but maybe a pressure valve. Client Partners, the friend agency, is six years old and the largest in Japan, with eight branches across Tokyo and another that more recently opened in Osaka. With us, Yumi says, people can talk about their feelings without worrying what their real friends think. After lunch, we wander around a scattering of 100 yen stores. For 100 yen, I could buy a dusty old mug or a weird cat statue or a pouch of dried plums. And then, suddenly, my time is up. Before parting ways at the subway entrance, we ask someone to snap our photo. That funny kinship that forms in front of a camera, the arms around each other, the shared self-consciousness. It seems to happen for us, too. Yumi writes her address in my notebook, draws a cartoon of herself in her fedora. Send me the picture, she writes beside it. On my own over the next few days, I develop a seamless routine of leaving the apartment, drifting vaguely toward the address on my phone, squinting confusedly, doubling back, eating some gyoza, and eventually stumbling onto my destination. On a drizzly Friday morning, my destination is the client partner's headquarters, a small but airy suite in a nondescript Shibuya district office building. I rope my translator in for this, and at the agreed-upon hour, we're met by a round-faced woman in a long, robe-like garment. Her name is Maki Abe, and she's the CEO of Client Partners. For the next hour, we sit across the desk from her and talk not about wacky interest kitsch, but a nation's spiritual health. We look like a rich country from the outside, Maki says, but mentally we have problems. She speaks slowly and methodically. Japan is all about face, she explains. We don't know how to talk to each other We don't know how to talk from the gut. We can't ask for help. So many people are alone with their problems and stuck, and their hearts aren't touching. Maki and I bowed when we met, but we also shook hands. Now she brings it up. There are many people who haven't been touched for years. We have clients who start to cry when we shake hands with them. It's not that people lack friends, she says. Facebook, Instagram... Scroll around and you'll find a country bursting with mugging and partying companionship. It just isn't real, that's all. In Japan, there's a real me and a masked me, Maki says. We have a word for the lonely gap in between that, kodoku. Maki attributes some of this to World War II. Spiritual consciousness was widespread before that, she says. Harmony and helping each other was the national spirit. Now we've got selfishness instead. Not even people looking out for their own families, just themselves. 
Maki's perspective, to be sure, should probably be taken with a little salt. I've yet to encounter a country without a similar narrative. Things were better, now they're worse. And maybe the CEO of a friendship rental company can't help but see fissures in the psychic landscape. Or maybe the crisis is real. Regardless, Maki wants to fix it, one synthetic relationship at a time. Before we part, she tells me client partner's ultimate goal is to render itself unnecessary. With that, I head back out to the street, where the morning's gentle rain has exploded into great lashing sheets. I walk back to my studio in the downpour. The city's slick and black and hurrying. Tokyo is too overwhelming to explore with an unfocused mind. It will break that mind. But go in with something specific to maul, and this alternately churning and serene metropolis makes a pleasantly delirious backdrop. Me, I'm pondering a phenomenon I've flown 5,000 miles to understand. Sure, renting a friend is inherently absurd. But friendship itself is a nebulous and imprecise relationship when you think about it. And in dragging it into the black and white realm of commerce, this industry might actually be a force for clarity in a strange way. Arguably, I am extra primed to absorb some clarity from people who are literally pros at being friends. I recently turned 40. When we were 22 or so, some close friends and I formed an only half-joking kind of men's group. Each month, we'd meet at some grimy bar and aim for a structured discussion of how we were doing. The hope was to lock in some habits of openness that seemed lacking in the older men we saw, and to not become reclusive and boring and taciturn in middle age. Looking back now, I think we also just wanted to keep friendship front and center, to never stop with the profound and idiotic nights at the grimy bars. Nearly two decades later, staggering through the rain on a Tokyo afternoon, I take stock. I'd say we've avoided taciturn and reclusive, slipped a little on the boring and open front. But keeping friendship truly central? That's a tall order. When you're young, friendship is pure, a perfect and drunken snowflake. But as you get older, you see it can be complicated. Are my decades-old relationships truly superior to the commercial variety? Okay, yes, duh. But they're also more problematic. Even with one's dearest friends, someone invariably feels slighted or underappreciated now and then. Say what you will about rent-a-friends, but they bypass that whole dynamic. You don't wonder about a rent-a-friend's real feelings about you because you know them. In fact, they abide by a clearly delineated rate. With the matter of intention taken off the table, you're free to focus on just having a nice time, on connecting in that very moment. The rain lets up before I quite decide to trade my dearest amateur friends for platonic prostitutes, but I suppose I could put a few on notice. It's my last night in Tokyo when I meet my final friend, Yusuke. It's a balmy evening, and we meet outside the subway station in Yoyogi. He's got a big mop of hair and old soul eyes, and within a couple minutes, we're exchanging life stories. By day, Yusuke sells furniture to corporate offices, a job, he tells me, that involves similar moves to being a friend. Express curiosity, open up about yourself first. It's a show, he says. But artifice and all, he's a sweet and unguarded sprite of a fellow. He lived in various countries as a student, and honed that easygoing adaptability common among kids who bounce around. He expresses curiosity and opens up. Soon he's leading me down a dark, wet street to a rickety okonomiyaki joint. Within a few minutes, he's showing me how to cook our own savory pancakes on the tabletop stove between us. 
Like many Japanese people, Yusuke works 10-hour days, and when his workday is over, he often spends the rest of the night with those same colleagues, eating or drinking till all hours. Tonight, I gather, is a welcome break from that routine. We talk about childhood and relationships and aging. Because our temperaments align, or because I'm comfy in Tokyo by now, or because we're both guys, conversation is easy. At one point, the waiter offers us drinks. Yusuke says no alcohol on duty, and I realize I'd forgotten this was duty at all. I've paid for every word Yusuke has uttered, but I'm also certain we've forged something genuine. I've never hired a prostitute. Maybe it's easier to believe their professed affections than I had imagined, even as the money is right there in front of you. Or maybe life is complicated. Maybe affection can be paid for and real at the same time. Toward the end of our meal, Yusuke and I find ourselves discussing our grandfathers. It was meant to be a conversation about how social life evolves with age, but it becomes one about World War II. Both men had served, ostensibly, I suppose, trying to kill one another somewhere in the South Pacific. Each, we agree, had been deeply affected by those years. The sins of our respective countries could have plunged the meal into awkwardness, but in fact the opposite happened. For a moment, we were just two friends, talking openly about how an earlier generation couldn't talk so openly. When later we part ways, we'll agree to stay in touch, and though we won't, we'll mean it in that moment. In the weeks ahead, it will occur to me I'm grateful for all the elements, the smell of the pancakes, the talk of grandfathers, the wet pavement outside. Years from now, those things might just remind me of another wacky cultural phenomenon that took hold in Japan. Or they might summon the memory of this nice furniture salesman named Yusuke, a mop-headed guy who for a couple hours one night in Tokyo started to become a friend. That was Chris Collin. Chris is currently making small talk with his wife and kids at home in San Francisco. He let us know that his next book, Off, The Day the Internet Died, comes out in 2021. And during lockdown, he launched a newsletter aimed at kids that's staffed entirely by kids. It's called Six Feet of Separation, and you can check it out at sixfeetofnews.com. Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afar.com slash travel tales. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's adventure, we hope you'll come back next week for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And please be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast was produced by Aislinn Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff Jen Grossman and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Koresha. And a special thanks to Laura Redmond, Sarah Storm, and Irene Wang. I'm Aislinn Green, your zoomed-out, under-traveled host. I can't wait to hit the road again. Until we all freely can, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours?